spent talking about blues of this uh, season it's really time that we talk about something else there's a really important influence on rock and roll in which we have referred to now as rockabilly rockabilly music is an offshoot of country and swing and a few other uh, minute influences but boy is it a whole new thing all in of itself and tonight i mean while there is certain country influences in the music that you'll hear you'll be able to hear really where some of the rock and roll phases come from. I'm Pat. I'm Ian. Thank you for tuning in tonight. And today we are covering a country artist named Bob Wills. And he was widely known as the king of Western swing. And he was born James Robert Wills on March 6, 1905 to parents, to parents John and Emma Wills on a farm near Casse, Texas. Oh, another Texan boy, huh? Another Texan boy. If you guys don't know what Western swing music is, it's a subgenre of American country that originated in the late 1920s. It's dance music, you know, mainly with an up-tempo beat and, you know, was and attracted huge crowds to dance halls and clubs in Texas, Oklahoma, and California during the 1930s and 40s until a federal wartime nightclub tax in 1944 kind of contributed to the genre's decline. Wait, so a tax started, like, declining the music because people didn't want to come out to dance halls anymore? Or? It got more expensive. Oh, that's fucking stupid. Yeah, and the thing about Western Swing is it's heavily influenced from jazz. I mean, it's got cowboy music, polka, folk, and blues, but Dixieland jazz was, like, the biggest influence on this music. So even though it sounds country because it's got country instruments in it, if you were to transcribe those over to more jazz instruments... It would sound just like a jazz song. Yeah, like uh, like swing dancing is like super fancy, isn't it? Like, it? Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't like the the swing classes that you take now like Western swing pretty much? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, because it's, it's, all it's not f- square dancing. Square dancing is kind of an yeah, offshoot of this. But... Yeah, exactly. Like it's, I don't know. It, it's very interesting. If you've ever seen like swing dancing, like really good swing dancers, that's worth watching all in of itself. Oh, yeah, that's fun. I mean, it's so much fun. that It's so good that... They even do lessons of it. I mean, that's how amazing this stuff is. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And another big thing about Western Swing is this was kind of the first country music to have electrically amplified string instruments, mainly the steel guitar, you know, given like a very distinctive, important sound to country music. Yeah, the twang. Yeah. So now that we kind of got an understanding of Western Swing, let's get back to Bob Wills. Now, his father was a statewide champion fiddle player. And either the Wills family was playing music or someone was, quote, always wanting us to play for them, in addition to working on a cotton farm. And so being raised on a cotton farm, Bob not only learned traditional music from his family, but he learned blues and jazz songs from the African-Americans that would work in the cotton fields with him. And it was said that he did not play with many white children other than his siblings at least until he was seven or eight years old. Most of his playmates were African-American, and it was said that his father enjoyed him enjoyed watching him jig dance with the black children. That almost sounds racist, even though it's like like totally accepting, but just yeah. like the terminology makes it sound very... Like... Well, it's, it's just because it, it was a different way to grow up yeah, than no, most exactly. white people, though, too, especially like 
in this era, you know, a lot of people were segregated. Yeah, exactly. And to quote Bob Wills on his childhood, he said, I don't know whether they made them up as they moved down the cotton rows or not, but they sang blues you never heard before. And in fact, he would be such a big fan of blues and jazz. As a kid, he once rode his bike 50 miles to go see Bessie Smith play. <laughs> Good old Bessie Smith. Yeah, I mean, that's some dedication, though, yeah. as a kid, just riding your bike, pedaling. 50, like 50 miles. miles is, you know, that brings a whole new turbo of, like, back in my day when I was a kid, I had to ride 50 miles to go see someone play. Yeah, I mean, shit, like 50 miles on a bike, that's... Uh... That's what, like ten hours, probably. Yeah, especially it, on those old ass bikes that didn't have yeah, gears. I'm not. I don't know. Like, I'm just trying to do the math in my head. Like, I'm thinking like <laughs> ten hours at least to ride fifty miles. I don't know. I'm sure people nowadays can do it faster, but this is like a kid on a riggedy old. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, just a, a a single gear bike. Yep. You know that just creaked down the road. <laughs> oh man, I can only imagine. Probably a one shoe on. <laughs> And so, as I mentioned, his father was, you know, a fiddle player, an award-winning fiddle player. He would also learn from both his father and grandfather how to play mandolin, guitar, and the fiddle. And he would regularly play local dances in his teens. Now, in 1913, the family would end up moving to Hall County in the Texas Panhandle. And his family would eventually buy their own farm between the towns of Lakeview, Texas, and Turkey, Texas. And Jim Rob, as he was known at the time, Bob. Jim Rob. Jim Rob. When he was only 10 years old in 1915, he fiddled at his first dance in Hall County, being called to fill in for his drunken daddy. Oh, shit. <laughs> hey, your dad's too drunk. Get up and play his parts. <laughs> That's actually pretty funny because you damn well know the kid knows how to play those parts. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he was just raised in a family of musicians, too, you know, so... Yeah, exactly. As, so, as soon as he could walk, he's probably playing music. Yeah, exactly. You heard your dad play these parts a thousand times. Just play it. <laughs> At the age of 16, Bob left the family and hopped a freight train. Oh, yes. As the all great musicians usually do. Well, not nowadays. And he would drift for several years from town to town, trying to earn a living where he can. But at one point, he almost lost his life when he nearly fell from a moving train, and then later got chased by the railroad police. Oh, the railroad police. <laughs> Busted. Sounds like the fakest-ass thing in the world, but I'm sure it's real. Probably real to them back in the yeah, day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> railroad police. Oh, no. I imagine them on, like, one of those little pump cars. You know, like the, the little... <laughs> the those railroad. little minor yeah, carts. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Catch up to the train. Yeah. There's a there's a hobo who hopped on it. <laughs> Pull over. Stop the train. <laughs> and now, before he ever became a professional musician, he really did have quite a bit of jobs. Some of those would be selling insurance and... Preaching the word. Oh, the word. But one job he took really serious. In fact, serious enough, he completed college for this, and that job was a barber. That's right. He completed barber college. <laughs> he cared so much about barbing, <laughs> he went to barber college, huh? Hey, he wants all of his buds to look awesome, man. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. They were all, like, very fancy in all of the videos we watched today. Oh, yeah, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the look later on, too. But music always being a part of his life, 
he still wanted to try and figure out a way to make a living playing music. So he ended up moving to Dallas-Fort Worth area in 1929 and essentially just looked for a job as a barber until he could find a band to play with. <laughs> hey, man, if, you're in a, if you can play in bands and you're a barber, you can go anywhere. Now, here's a little bit of uncomfortableness at this period, at this stage in his music career. Oh, great. The only way he was able to find work as a musician at the time was as a blackface fiddler with a medicine show. Yeah, you shouldn't be doing that. Shouldn't be, but I I have a hard time putting him in the asshole spotlight because it was kind of the thing to do at the time, and it's like you want to be... Yeah, it, yeah, that's that's it's, just stupid. It's just dumb. Don't do it. Don't do blackface. <laughs> oh and it's also kind of weird, you know, because of how much he lo- uh how much influence he took off of African American music too. Yeah, you know, well, I just like, I just don't get it. Like, we really need a fiddle player, uh, but I'm gonna need you to just paint your face. Uh, what? Yeah, no, I'm gonna need you to just just paint your face. Yeah, I I don't know. Uh, yeah. And it was here playing in this medicine show that he would end up meeting two brothers, Wills and Herman Arnspinger. Ooh, that's a good last name, Arnspinger. Yeah. And he would end up hooking up with the brothers, Milton and Derwood Brown, and they would form the Wills Fiddle Band, but would eventually be called Aladdin Laddies. Aladdin Laddies? There's an explanation for this. Hold on. And... They would end up becoming regular radio performers on WBAP in 1930. Oh, yes. Now, the reason why they were named Aladdin Laddies was back in this day, it was common for musicians to be sponsored by or even named after or even named for advertisers. And they were named after the Aladdin Lamp Company. Wait, wait, so the, was this just for making their advertisements, or did they release uh, their own music as... The Aladdin Laddies. Oh, my God, that's a thing? Like, well, I mean, I imagine... Like at a this race point, car? It's just it hard to make uh, money in any sort of way, so you just got to, you know, kind of sell yourself out in, in a way just to make something. Oh, my God. That's just so fucking funny. Oh, here comes the McDonald's, guys. Oh, it gets better. So they were eventually dropped by the Aladdin Lamp Company. And so they formed the Light Crust Doughboys. And they were basically a billboard for Burris's Light Crust Flower. (laughs) God damn it. And they literally punched a time clock for this company as... Wills was a delivery truck driver by day and a fiddler by night. <laughs> what the fuck? Jesus Christ. <laughs> gotta make a buck somehow. Yeah, I know. You gotta do what you gotta do to make your money, but that is just fucking insane. Like, that is the weirdest, most asinine combination of skills and, you know, like, business. <laughs> hey, I like your music. Come work for us. Oh, and name your band after us. Oh, and drive a truck during the day. <laughs> Because, you know, you know, they were like between songs like, hey, you know what the best flower is? Do you guys know what the best flower is? It's whatever fucking flower the company that my band's named after. Burris is light crust flower. Yeah, obviously. I mean, so before we go on the next song, make sure you get some fucking light crust flower, bro. 
we sell them in the back next to our t-shirts. <laughs> like, could you imagine that going on in, like, different eras? Like, we get into, like, the hair rock. Hey, Chicago! <laughs> We're the Coca-Cola band! <laughs> 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 Before no, we rock, you just know, get a refreshing beverage. <laughs> no, you know, uh, you know, a hairband would be like, "Wear Aquanet, yeah." <laughs> you know how our hair gets so big. <laughs> Fuck that. <laughs> Oh, dude, fuck that whole whole situation. Oh, my God, that makes me laugh so hard. Now, the manager for the group worked for the Light Crust Flower Company and was also a radio show MC. His name was W. Lee Pappy O'Daniel. Oh, there's another legendary name. W. Oh, yeah. W. Lee Pappy O'Daniel. <laughs> oh, yeah, you've heard, you totally heard of him. That dude will punch a guy out in a bar. <laughs> well, his idea for the band was that it would be in his best interest, not necessarily the bands, that they performed only on the radio and not dances at all. But, you know, this was dance music after all, and Wills and the rest of the band didn't like this idea. Well, duh. They wanted to play in front of people. And so because of this, the Browns brothers would end up leaving to form Milton's Brown Musical Brownies <laughs> in 1932. Is that another another uh, company reference? It sure is. Oh, my God. <laughs> it wasn't long after this that Will's drinking got him fired for, uh, by Pappy. <laughs> so, Bob... Wait, he, his drinking got him fired by a guy named Pappy O'Daniel? Yep. Jeez. <laughs> is that an Irish drunk joke, Pat? Yes, that absolutely is. And so Bob, not to be, you know, put off by being fired from a band, traveled with his brother Johnny Lee for Waco, Texas, where the Texas Playboys were frequently playing on a radio station, Waco. Oh, <laughs> W-A-C-O. <yeah. laughs> and a funny little side note to the, the Light Crest Doughboys, they would continue on without a lot of the original members, and they would endure as kind of the keepers of, the Western Music Flame, you know, kind of keep it alive. And they would receive their first Grammy nomination in 1997, 60 years after Bob left the band. Wait, so they, they were still going in 1997? Yeah. What the fuck? <laughs> the Light <laughs> Crust Doughboys? And had many members throughout the years. That, well, band, that company doesn't even exist anymore, does no, it? No, no. And they still perform today. But for most of the rest of the career, they were carried by a man named Marvin Smokey Montgomery, who played banjo, and he played with them from 1935 until he died in 2001. <laughs> Jesus. I don't mean to laugh at the guy dying, but what the fuck? I wonder if they still did, like, the advertisement songs just for, like, retro aesthetic or... <laughs> <laughs> if you want a fluffy light crust, come get your... Like crust dough stuff. <laughs> oh, shit, yeah. I think your band needs to change its name. Get Nike, yourself. we can be the band Air Music or something. Come on now. <laughs> we'll wear your sneakers, I swear to God. Yeah, exactly. Apple, we're I-band. <laughs> and so, during those early years in Waco, 
and even Tulsa, as the Playboys would kind of travel between the two quite often, Bob would end up joining the band, and they would begin to grow as a band, you know, getting more people. But, you know, they had players on it, like steel guitar player Leon McAleaf, Smokey Dacus on drums, Jesse Ashlock on guitar, brother Al Strickland and his boogie-woogie-styled piano plan. Like, <laughs> you know, just a great lineup for, like, what would be a classic country band nowadays. But it's Just a bunch of legendary names. Like, I don't even know any of the names. I'm just, the, the names themselves sound legendary. Well, and I was just talking about the instruments themselves. I mean, think of all the 70s stuff. You wouldn't find any of these not on stage yeah. in, the, in 70s country music. This yeah. was unheard of back then. But here's the thing. Playboy was also a product push. Playboy flower. <laughs> oh, of course it is. God damn it. Had to get that one in there for you. I knew you'd like that. And so throughout the 1930s, Bob's vision of a jazzy fiddle band began to take shape. But they weren't the only ones west of the Appalachians to bring together big city jazz and frontier fiddle music. Now, Milton Brown, who played with him in the Doughboys, continued with the same sound and actually had quite success with the musical Brownies until he tragically died following a 1936 auto accident. Oh, 30s car accidents are the worst. All them uh, seatbelts and airbags? Yeah. And along the way of this band finding their sound, Bob became the clear leader of the pack. It was his consistent effort to put on bigger and better shows that kind of brought about the quote-unquote big sound. And he was a showman. And putting on a better show meant bringing on lots of other instruments, more fiddles than just his own. A good show for dancing, that was the goal, not the creation of some musical revolution. Well, I mean, that's that's what he that's what he accomplished. I mean, everything I listen to, I want to dance. Exactly. Or it's good, wholesome sounding music anyway, but it's good music. Yeah, exactly. And you can definitely see where a lot of like the the up tempo stuff from rock and roll really gets its influences in from in his life. Oh, yeah. There's several songs in there where you can really hear the chord changes that would bring on rockabilly. Yeah, for sure. Now, Bob may have been country, but the image he wanted to portray in both appearance and song was far removed from the hillbilly style that had been coming out of Nashville. He did not want the Playboys to be another hillbilly band. The Playboys usually appeared in cowboy dress attire, no sequins or overalls. This was a sophisticated outfit, and Bob's look was that of a well-dressed band leader, but one from Texas. He had his hat, cigar, and fiddle and this was part of his trademark appearance. In the earliest incarnations of the group and in the career of the Playboys, there would be hundreds of musicians in it. It would include trumpets, saxophones, would have female vocalists, you know, a lot of jazzy type instruments. And the band's makeup and size changed frequently. It could grow into basically a Western symphony or shrink into a tight little fiddle band. The most important qualification for being a Texas Playboy was that you had to be a good musician and good people. They had to get along with the other band members and with the audience. It was that simple. You play your heart out on stage and just make sure everybody's having fun. Now, what really made this sound different from other country music at the time was the steel guitar that was electrified by the late 1930s, extra fiddles, an electric mandolin, and the drums, all of which 
especially the electrified stuff and the drums was like a no-go in country at the time. Yeah, I mean, drum set, I don't think I've ever seen anything like that in that era of uh, country. No, not at all. And, you know, with them wanting to put on fun shows that people can dance to and electrified music, you know, this is kind of leaning towards the emergence of rock and roll. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it does make a lot of sense, especially if, when you watch some of these videos, like the uh, when he comes in with the amped up, uh, I don't know, whatever the lap guitar is. I can't remember what it's called. Steel guitar. Yeah, steel guitar. Uh, or lap steel. Yeah, or lap, yeah, whatever it is. When he comes through with the amped up version of that, I was like, oh, I see where a lot of these influences are going to like pan out because it's all amped up and because it comes out all like almost semi-distorted, like a natural distortion. Yeah. Well, and you can even hear, like, the influence into guitar solos from there, too. Like, yeah. Like, straight guitar solos instead of having just, like, a lead part, you know? Because they had straight solos with this lap steel. I mean, it's pretty cool. And they seem to, like, as a band, kind of just pass the solo around in a circle, which seems to be what Swing does a lot. And now, this band would not be complete without having a vocalist. And they basically wanted someone who had the crooner style, but also gave off the country sound. And that's where Tommy Duncan comes in with his relaxed, smooth voice. It was as appealing as Bing Crosby, but just more suited for a fiddle band. Yeah, and I mean, I, I can't argue with that. He was actually really cool. I, I was surprised when, like, because most of the songs, he, did, he didn't say anything. And then when he comes in, I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> And the Texas Playboys would end up doing their first recording on September 23rd to the 25th in 1935 in Dallas. Not really a lot of notable stuff, but they would go back in in 1938 and they would have both lead guitar that was amplified and the steel guitar that was amplified on the recordings in these 35 recordings. And they recorded their first hit, Ida Red. And this was basically the model for Chuck Berry's version of basically the same song, Maybelline. Now, it sounds different because they've got a Western style to it, but it's the basic same chord format and vocal melody structure. That's cool. I didn't even notice that when we listened to it. I'll have to re-listen to it with that in mind. Yeah, it's you actually, at first you're like, no, this is different. And then you go back and you're like, oh, now I hear it. Yeah, and I mean it. It makes sense. Like, uh, like we've said, you know, it's there's nothing wrong with like kind of copying, but as long as it's not copying, it's more taking influence from something. So you know, yeah, this has kind of been a big theme this season too. Yeah, exactly. Well, it, it's because that's all of the acclamation that happens in rock and roll. It's a whole bunch of influence taking from different places and putting it in places that it typically didn't belong before, and eventually it's gonna, uh, uh, you know, form into something beautiful. But also in these recordings, they would record their biggest hit single at the time, San Antonio Rose. Another really good song. Actually, you've heard a different version of this song, but let's get to my first dude check out this song before I explain that. All right. And dude, you guys got to check out Ida Red. That song is rocking. It does. It, it just straight rocks the entire time. It'll make you want to dance. And the reason why... I say you're talking about a different version is because the one I played for you was a 1940 recorded version entitled New San Antonio Rose. Oh. And this was an even bigger hit for the Playboys. In fact, this was their biggest hit and most well-known song throughout Bob's entire career. Oh, like, it, was it the same song or was it, like, completely different? 
it was essentially the same song. There was more instruments and the lyrics were changed. Ooh, well. And in fact, this would be recorded. This song, And in fact, this song would be recorded by numerous artists, including Bing Crosby, who also had a hit with it in the 1940s. Nice. But other hit songs they would end up recording in this time was Texas Playboy Rag, Mexicali Rose, Take Me Back to Tulsa, and Faded Love. And this last song was actually co-written by Bob's father. Nice. Yeah, so he was able to get his dad in on it. Which brings me to my next dude. Check out this song. New San Antonio Rose, Texas Playboy Rag, and Take Me Back to Tulsa. Oh, yeah. All all very, very jammy jams. Although we didn't listen to Take Me Back to Tulsa. but I'll add uh, it to I list. didn't have time to play that one for you. Yeah, I'll add it to my list. Now, in 1942, World War II brought the band to a temporary end as a number of the guys would go into the service, including Bob at the age of 37. Wow, 37, and he's still like, hell, I'm going to World War II. Fuck it. Well, don't be too impressed because less than a year later, he was medically discharged. (laughs) Maybe just a little too old to go to war. He tried. He tried. And all during the time of the Texas Playboys, Bob's brother, Johnny Lee Wills, kept a radio show going. And he would end up keeping this radio show going until 1958. And he would basically kind of keep the Western swing sound alive, even though, you know, especially after World War II, things started dying down. Yeah. But Johnny Lee also had his own swing band that was end up based in Tulsa. And many of the members of his band and the Playboy uh, and the Playboys often intertwined with each other. They just kind of went back and forth between the bands. Whoever got the gig and whoever wanted to play, essentially. That's pretty cool, though. But here's the thing. Bob set up Johnny Lee's band for him, as he would later do for his younger brothers, Billy Jack and Luke. Now, how country is the name Billy Jack? Billy Jack. <laughs> I mean, all of this family were musically talented. And, you know, the Playboys would play in essentially all of these bands, but Bob was like the clear business leader behind every single one of these bands. You know, he knew how to run it. He knew how to get them going and he knew how to attract an audience. To quote Bob's daughter, Rosetta, Johnny Lee was always kind of in the shadows. He was a sweetheart, nicest man in the world. Uncle Billy Jack was a good musician. Luke, all of them. But Bob was the star. (laughs) Well, I mean, his name goes in front of everything, so. Yeah. Bob Wills and his Texas Playboys. Yeah, exactly. He's not even the singer of the band. That's the amazing part. Yeah, but he possesses the band. This is my band. And so in 1943, Bob and his wife Barbara would relocate to California. Now, there's a reason why I haven't mentioned any of his wives to this point, and we'll get to that later. And they would first relocate to Los Angeles, then to Fresno, and then finally Sacramento, where he would buy his enormous ranch and nightclub that was known as Will's Point. (laughs) The ranch was also a nightclub, or he purchased a ranch and a nightclub? The way it seemed like, the ranch also had a nightclub on it. Ah, well, that's kind of a thing. I mean, I wonder what kind of nightclub it is. Because when, you know, you think of a nightclub, it conjures a certain image, but for some reason, I don't feel like that's the nightclub that he's talking about. Well, the nightclub of this era was probably a little different. Yeah, for sure. And this move would actually help Bob and the remaining members of the Playboys get into dozens of 1940s Western movies, including movies like Going West, Young Lady, The Lone Prairie, 
a tornado in the saddle and take me back to Oklahoma. And they would all share screen time with the singing cowboy star Tex Ritter. <laughs> That's awesome. And it was also in this era when the Playboys would record the Tiffany transcripts. We listened to at least one track from that. Yeah, there's some good ones here. In fact, there's so many, I didn't want to get a dude check out the song. I'm just going to go back through and find my favorites and add them to it. Yeah. But these songs were completely separate from the normal commercially released music. These transcriptions of live in the studio sessions were handled by a company called Tiffany Music, and they were to be sent to radio stations as early versions of syndicated programming. And so the performances were formatted in such a way that the radio stations could customize them with local announcers and commercials, but they only played on the radio. Seemed like a great business idea at the time because, well, radio was exploding. So wait, the album is like cut in a way to where it could seem natural for like a radio guy to like talk between the parts or yeah so essentially these were played in live format but then you could cut in between the songs and go and this is sponsored by i don't know playboy yeah. you know whatever yeah you know, what or they could be like you know oh and down to you down there in the studio and then the studio people could say stuff yeah and this is actually really different than than bob's like original tent for all of his music because he always wanted to play live but these were recorded only for radio. Some of these songs you would never hear on any of the albums that he ever recorded. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. And this was advertised as a surefire audience builder for your station, a powerful selling vehicle for your sponsors. Unfortunately, Tiffany Music failed as a business venture. It did last for several years, and it actually helped dozens of stations. But... After Tiffany fell, these recordings sat untouched for decades in a basement, and they wouldn't see the light a day again until they were released in the 1980s by Rhino Records, you know, kind of giving a reinvigorated glimpse into the Playboy's music at the time. <laughs> That's cool. And some of the songs that were actually recorded on this were songs like Fat Boy Rag or Keep Knocking, But You Can't Come In. Yeah, that's a that's a fairly popular song there. In fact, this song was made famous by Little Richard. It was not a Playboy's original. It was first recorded around February 1926 by a blues artist named James Boodlet Wiggins. Boodlet. Boodlet. But yeah, I just figured that you put it on there because really, if you listen to this version and the Little Richard version, the chords are the same. But Little Richard, Little Richard's it up like he really goes crazy on this. Yeah, it's hard to, to compare. Yeah. But this brings me to my next dude. Check out the song, and that's Fat Boy Rag and Keep Knocking. Oh, Fat Boy Knocking. So during the rest of the 1940s and 50s, Bob Wills and the Playboys would never reach their previous level of popularity, yet they continued to sell out concerts of loyal fans and sell many records. Hell yeah. And somehow, amidst their constant traveling throughout the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, they were able to keep writing music. Which seems like a big achievement because they really did just constantly play live. Like, that was their goal was to play a good show. Yeah, I mean, but if you're constantly playing live and not doing much else, that kind of keeps you in the mood to write music too, though. So it does become one of those things where the more you do it, the more you're likely to do it. 
Right, but at some point, it definitely can drag on to even, you know, the best of musicians. Because sometimes you need a break. They really didn't take much break. It didn't look like these guys needed a break. I'm just going to say, like, you know, a, a a lot of modern and, like, you know, like, super emotional artists get that way. But I feel like these guys... These guys went to work every day and clocked in on the band, and that was all right with them. You know what I mean? They didn't. Yeah. They didn't get emotionally drained out of it because I feel like they really did treat their band like a business. Oh, definitely. They definitely treated it like a business. You just got look at the fact that they would name their band after, you know, different sponsors. Yeah. No. Exactly. And I think that would more than anything fight that whole like oh we're we're artistically burnt out sort of you know put my hand on my head and feel really sad artistically on the inside i'm pretty sure this band never had any of that shit i'm pretty (laughs) sure they come in they're like bill chuck frank hello we're all gonna play the songs we play all the songs all right nobody nobody missed a beat the whole song all right cool see you guys tomorrow clack clack hit the clock in they all go home like I feel like there was some clockwork going on with this band. They feel very put together. So in 1945, Bob Wills and his Texas Playboys would end up achieving a notoriety. They were invited to play the prestigious home of country music, the Grand Ole Opry. Oh, yeah. That's like this Super Bowl for country music. Yeah, essentially. Especially back in this day, too. And now, a drum set was an integral part of the Playboy's music, but it was unheard of in the rest of the world of country music. Yeah. And when the Opry staff told Bob that his drummer couldn't play, he angrily declared that he would not leave a band member out. It was all of the Texas Playboy's or none. Hell yeah. Now, Bob did agree, however, to let the drums be set up behind the curtains. That is until it was time to play when he hollered, Move those things out on the stage. (laughs) (laughs) And this is the moment when Bob Wills had left a permanent mark on country music. There would forever be a beat in country music. After that moment? After that moment. Hell yeah. That's fucking awesome. He's like, oh yeah, no problem. Just set them up behind stage. Wink, wink. Yep, gotcha. <laughs> Not fucking set it up on stage, bitch. <laughs> Get those fuckers out here. He's part of the band too. <laughs> That's a that is, that really is like a badass move. That is an applying dominance move. I I was talking about applying dominance earlier when we were watching some of his live stuff because some of the stances he takes while he's playing like a uh, fiddle. Oh my god, he's just like knees spread with just like his his power stance and just staring. At oh the yeah, crowd. it was like it was like the uh, metal stance for fiddle <laughs> yeah, players. Exactly. I was like, geez, dude, he's like he's just rocking it so hard, and everyone's like, yeah. Oh yeah, man, he was a showman. You know, it was all about putting on a performance. I mean that, and at the end of the day, that's what it was. You had to perform live. Mm-hmm. And now the thing about the Playboys is is They didn't just play country tunes. They would incorporate pop tunes by the likes of Cole Porter. They would incorporate jazz works by W.C. Handy, a particularly soulful rendition rendition of St. Louis blues. And they would even do traditional folk songs by the likes of, say, Woody Guthrie. Oh. You ever heard his song, Oklahoma Hills? Oh, yeah. Yep, they did that song. Hell yeah, that's awesome. And they would even record the blues standard sitting on top of the world. 
Howlin' Wolf episode, anybody? Oh, shit. Sitting on top of the world. And so now we kind of get to the point where, as I mentioned previously, I didn't really want to, like, talk about his wives all that much. Oh, God. Because it was kind of hard to keep track of in the whole timeline. And this is why. Bob Wills was married six times and divorced five times. He was twice married to and divorced from Mary Helen Brown. And he was also married and divorced several times between 1935 and 1941. On August 10th, 1942, he married Betty Anderson and they would remain married until his death. They had four children. That, was that a sixth marriage? Yeah, his <laughs> sixth and final. And so Dude. that's why I kind of left it out of the timeline because it was quite confusing as to when it was, happened. When, yeah, so it, he kept getting married to that one girl? It, it, it happened twice. <laughs> so I, I think there was a marriage in between that too. <laughs> <laughs> All right, my my other marriage didn't work. You want to try again? Like, I mean, <laughs> you were fun. Let, yeah. I mean, this will work. It wasn't time. as bad as the other, and then you get back together. Like, oh no, we made a mistake. This is terrible. And so now, moving on to the '60s for Bob, he basically would just line up a gig, and then a bunch of local players would be rounded up before his arrival, and he would just bill this as Bob Wills and his boys. So he'd just get some local phenom players and just go play whatever show he felt like. Yeah, and doesn't have to be named after any company. But by the early 70s, Bob's health kind of started suffering. Well, I mean, that does always happen eventually. He had several strokes. Several strokes? He had several strokes and heart attacks that left him paralyzed, confined to a wheelchair. Wow, that's not health declining. That's fucking crazy. (laughs) That's basically on the edge of death, yes. You you made it sound like, (laughs) oh, he's got diabetes now, and his knees hurt when he gets out of bed. No, several heart attacks and several strokes and then wheelchair bound is is pretty destitute, dude. Well, and so in 1973, some of the Playboys got together with the help of country music star and Bob Will's fan, Merle Haggard. Oh, shit. Yeah. And they put together one last album while Bob still had the strength to even play. Hell, that's so fucking cool. Yeah. Merle Haggard is just a legendary badass. As far as I can tell, Merle Haggard just in general is just a badass. Merle Haggard's pretty fucking awesome. Yeah. We're going to have to do an episode about him someday. Yeah. Yeah. He may, he may get a look. We do try to avoid people with that level of fame, but he almost deserves it anyways. So Yeah. And now these recordings would eventually yield the album Bob Wills and his Texas Playboys for the last time. That was the name of the band for the last or the name of the album for the yeah, last time. For the last time. Well, that's both sad and badass. Yeah. And get this, dude. So when the album was released, they brought it over to Bob Wills and played it for him. That night, Bob had a massive stroke and would never get out of bed again. And he would end up dying on May 13th, 1975 at the age of 70. And the headstone of his grave bears the epitaph, deep within my heart lies a melody. That's fucking cool. Yeah, I knew you would love that epitaph. I like that. That's super awesome. That is like super sad, but also like in the best way. Like that's a happy a happy sad like an ending of a like a like a sappy come together like feel good like you know i don't know 
it's not the sort of ending that we usually get around here. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah, and well, I like that. And I do got to say about the album for the last time, it's a solid album. And so they're, they're, the reason why there's no dude check out this song is because I have to listen to it again and pick out the best from it. But I listened to the whole thing. This is a good album, dude. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, what a better way to go out with a solid album when you're in your 70s. Yeah. Being propped up by Merle Haggard and all your bros. Like, shit, yeah, man. <laughs> they're, uh, they're still probably partying and drinking. And and Merle Haggard's like, can you it, can you still drink this? And yeah. He's probably like, hell yeah, it'll get me play better. On the- <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. That's fucking cool. I, 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 really, I really do appreciate that. And so now I think it's time for our last thoughts. Yeah, the man actually had a pretty full life. Yeah, this is. I actually found a little 15 page paper on this guy, and I had to cut out a lot. You know, I had yeah. to just try and keep to the interesting, straight facts to it. Wow. Well, uh, I, I mean, I, I keep making you go first, so I guess I'll go first. Uh, my last thoughts on this are honestly very simple. Uh, I'm just happy to have a very wholesome episode for once. Uh, the only thing I can. It's re- been a little while, hasn't it? Yeah, no, exactly. I, I keep getting stabbed in the side by all the episodes, but this time, I mean, I've got nothing to complain about but a little bit of commercialism. So uh, I'm going to make some jokes about, you know, the, the different band names being related to brand names and all that fun stuff. But uh, really, at the end of the day, I don't have anything to complain about about this guy's life. Like, this dude is legendary and. Once again, it's a shame that we all don't know who the fuck he is. Right, and that's the funny thing is, is he drank, but it never got out of control to the point where, other than maybe one band where it doesn't sound like he had a good relationship with the manager anyway, you know, I mean. Yeah, no, exactly. Like, the fact that it appears once in his biography and never again shows not only that he was capable of doing it, but also that he never let it become a problem after he learned that it could be a problem, you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. I mean, clearly with some of his health issues that he had later on, probably played a factor into his death, but he never let it get out of control to the point where he couldn't, you know, manage his bands and his music and his shows. Yeah, and I mean, obviously he had a pretty uh, rocky personal life, so I mean, maybe the drinking played some into his, uh, you know, his his many marriages. His and, first five marriages. Yeah, the first five marriages. <laughs> but uh, at, at any point, you know, I'm not even going to like spend any time judging that, just because guess what? This dude didn't stab, shoot, anything terrible anybody. So uh, as far as I can tell, he's uh, he's fairly decent, with the exception of the, the blackface thing, because that's... That's kind of weird still. So my last thoughts on him is uh, good job on (laughs) living a (laughs) successful life as a musician and uh, not having anything so terrible that it stains your existence for the rest of history. Yeah. uh, Except for the blackface thing. Well, okay. So I guess it's time for my last thoughts, huh? And this is really where I go from it. Guys like Jerry Lee Lewis, Carl Perkins, Elvis Presley, Buddy Holly, All these guys wanted to be was country artists. And with the help of guys like Bob Wills, you know, they were quite influenced to do that because, I mean, they put on shows, you know. It just so happened that this new music, Rockabilly, was coming out, and they started to do that. I mean, even Johnny Cash, who remained country, wrote a ton of Rockabilly songs. Yep. And without guys like this... Rock and roll wouldn't be where it's at, let's be honest, because Rockabilly was kind of that first incarnation of rock and roll, and it built from there. 
if nothing else, I think that rockabilly really set the foundation for rock and roll in how to form a band. You know, rockabilly was the first to have that kind of standardized three-piece formation. If they'd even do, like, four-piece, you know? Yeah, and, I, and I'm never saying one. When I say three-piece, I don't mean you can only have guitar, bass, and drums. I mean, like, three-piece as in that forms the core. Yeah. Like, you know, there's always the addition. That's the beauty of it is with the three-piece, you can add, you know, you, you got your vocalist, and maybe your vocalist plays, what, harmonica? Or, or acoustic guitar. Yeah, or whatever it may be that is your accompaniment. But in the end of the day, it becomes this this bass, treble, and drums. And that yep. is your core. And I just really think that this guy helped set a foundation for rock and roll that really kind of went unnoticed to pretty much anybody who talks about rock and roll and the forming of rock and roll. Well, the more I'm looking into it, the harder it is to see, like, any actual influence. Like, it's so many, like, situational things coming together. Like, things that are never connected, like these deep blues and now this portion of country music that's going to become rockabilly. Yeah, that was also extremely inspired by jazz. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So it's this jazz-influenced country music that's going to smash together with some blues in a little bit and... Then it's going to come together with just a little bit of social, like, tension. That's the thing. I think that's the secret ingredient that we're thinking, that we're starting to uncover as we get towards the end of the uh, third season here is this social tension as we come from the 40s and 50s even further forward. Everything is starting to change so quickly that music almost starts to react more violently. Yeah. So I'm I'm myself super excited in the coming episodes. We just have a few more episodes this season, and then uh, we're going to be moving on to the fourth season, which is going to be all about the rock and roll. Yeah. Uh, don't get too excited. We're not going to be covering any, uh, you know, hair bands right away. We're going to keep moving at the pace that we move, and we'll move into the early 50s and talk about, like, the the very first incarnations of rock and roll. And then we will start to, you know continue that theme as we move forward but you mean we're not going to cover errol smith your favorite band next season (laughs) yeah well that's the first episode of next season (laughs) anyways uh i i really appreciate everyone who comes out every night and listens to us and uh thank you yeah and actually it's come to my attention that people are having a hard time finding our music on spotify so the list for these songs on our Spotify, they're actually under our profile, which is separate from where the podcast get released. So just look for our profile and you'll find all of our do check out these songs, all of our all of our playlists there. Yeah, so we have a personal uh, Spotify profile, which we'll make the link available in the description. And uh, that that is separate from the account that they release our Spotify uh, actual podcasts on. And there's no legitimate way for us to combine those, so we apologize for that. But if anyone was having trouble finding it, I hope that this will at least help you doing it forward. Thank you for listening. Good night.